I next met with Dr. Adil Dowd from the UCSF Cancer Center. And to begin, I asked him about the incidence and spectrum of immune-related adverse events associated with the use of checkpoint inhibitors. If you look at immune-related adverse events, if they're somewhere between 20 and 60% of all people treated with PD-1 inhibitors, you know, depending on whether you're talking single agent, combination, combinations with IPI or combinations with IDO inhibitors. So the percentage of serious adverse event varies somewhat depending on the precise PD-1 drug or pdl one drug that you're talking about. And I think the most life-threatening, the most worrisome are things like colitis, liver function tests, abnormalities or hepatitis, pancreatitis, and then some of the endocrine abnormalities, things like type 1 diabetes, they're not particularly common, but they're pretty life-altering. You know, I've had patients who've had adjuvant PD-1. I have a 35-year-old who had adjuvant pembrolizumab and has developed type 1 diabetes, and we don't think that is going to change over time. We think he's stuck with checking his sugar and giving himself insulin probably forever and things like myocarditis and some of the neurological side effects that are not as common, but very life-altering. And so what is the common theme behind these adverse events? I think one of the common themes seems to be activated T-cells infiltrating tissues that probably they shouldn't be infiltrating, like the colon, like the liver, like the neurologic system, like the heart, or some of these endocrine organs. In some cases... We think the problem is aberrant or unusual expression of adhesion molecules in these target organs like the colon or liver. And that is getting activated T-cells attracted to them. And once the T-cells are there, just by random chance, just stochastically, some T-cells will react to whatever tissue they appear to be trapped in. And then once you have that damage created, then it kind of sets off this vicious cycle where damage and more attractive adhesion molecules. So currently what people do is use steroids, immune suppressive drugs like mycophenolate and stuff like that. But if you do that, you're also killing off some of your tumor reactive T-cells. So you know that there's a delicate balancing act there. But what we think is that they could be more specific agents that might be able to prevent trafficking of these T-cells into the colon or into the liver and still preserve the T-cells per se, and maybe they can still traffic to tumor sites and still kill tumor. That's the vision, that you might be able to do that without destroying the T-cells themselves. And where are we or where are you in terms of research looking at alternative strategies? To me, one of the really interesting pieces of research is actually research that people in ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease have done. And basically, in ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease, what people have figured out is that there are these integrin antibodies that can prevent integrins, which are the sticky substrate on T-cells, and basically can prevent integrins from binding to adhesion molecules. And if you do that, you can get some effective treatment for things like ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease and multiple sclerosis and autoimmune liver disease. So I guess what we've done, our preliminary data indicates that a similar thing might be going on in immune checkpoint-induced adverse events, and you might be able to prevent it by just preventing these T-cells from kind of getting waylaid in your colon or in your liver rather than going to the tumor. That sort of leads into the issue of the use of checkpoint inhibitors in patients with prior autoimmune conditions. Where are we today in understanding that scenario, and how do you approach that situation clinically? 
I think it remains a very difficult issue because especially when you're talking double and now people are talking about triple immune checkpoint inhibitor combinations where you might have a PD-1 agent, you might have a T-cell activating agent, and then you might have an IDO inhibitor or something else, you know, a triple combination of some type. In these cases, once you have a runaway activated T-cell, it's very hard to stop that without also stopping a lot of the tumor reactive T-cells. And so what people do is use steroids plus mycophenolate for liver toxicity or steroids plus TNF blockers for colitis and for bowel problems. And then there's a further class of problems like multiple sclerosis, myasthenia gravis, myocarditis, where essentially there isn't much that can be done except to maybe cope with the symptoms of the damage. You know, you can try and reduce afterload on the heart. There isn't much you can do to prevent the myocarditis or the damage. But once you've recognize the damage, maybe you can put a like a pacemaker in, or I'd say managing the symptoms more than preventing that toxicity from happening. So I think for things like diabetes and myocarditis, I don't think we know today what the problem or a good approach to prevent that problem. But I think for things like colitis and hepatitis and thyroiditis, these are common side effects. And I think in many cases, these are the things that bring treatment to a halt, You know, especially the colitis brings treatment to a halt. I think in these cases, I feel like the blocking of adhesion receptors and adhesion molecules might be a productive path to prevent them from happening. Any thoughts about whether or not some of these patients that you see autoimmune toxicity that don't have a, quote, clinical history of autoimmune disease maybe do have an autoimmune disease that's sort of subclinical that's being brought out? Yeah, I think that's a great point. If you look at patients, a lot of times you'll see that when you get a PET scan on someone, you'll see increased sugar uptake in their thyroid glands, even before they start. Of course, you see thyroiditis after they start, but yeah, it could be that you have some subclinical, but I think it could even be that all of us or many of us have T-cell infiltration in our thyroid or in our hearts, but because of PDL one blockade, it, it kind of keeps those T-cells from doing much damage. Once you get the inhibitor, now those T-cells are running amok. You mentioned the case you had of the patient with diabetes. Can you compare the pathophysiology, what we think the pathophysiology is of sort of the type 1 diabetes to start with, and how that compares to what happens when you give somebody a checkpoint inhibitor and they get it? The patient I'm talking about is a 35-year-old, and he, in fact, had this very interesting history. He had a history of Guillain-Barre syndrome that happened after an apparent E. coli infection, which I think he picked up like a traveler's diarrhea on one of his trips somewhere. And then he had that Guillain-Barre syndrome. It was very transient. It was just a polyneuropathy and just regressed. Otherwise, he healthy, active, very fit, 35-year-old. So he got adjuvant pembrolizumab. He had a stage 3 melanoma. He had a couple of different sites of disease, but stage 3A, microscopic disease in both sites. And I think about month 6, he just came in for a routine visit, and his sugar levels were, I want to say, 250. And when I talked to him, he's like, yeah, I had a smoothie. You know, I was like working out at the gym. I was feeling kind of dehydrated. I had a smoothie. I was like, yeah, okay, that makes sense. You know, maybe it's just one of those things. And then the next time he came in, again, he had a really high sugar level. Just, again, it wasn't a fasting 
sugar. And I wasn't as concerned, but we did send him to the endocrinologist. And lo and behold, he did more testing and confirmed that it was diabetes. And I've noticed the same pattern that you could go months and months of treatment and then abruptly you have like a spike. And he didn't have any pancreatitis. He didn't have lipase elevations. You think you might have lipase elevations if you have T-cells in your pancreas, but he was just kind of like out of the blue. Interesting. So he got, what, adjuvant Pembro on a trial? Adjuvant Pembro, it was actually off trial. So it was not on trial. It was just adjuvant Pembro because he had this previous, and then you could question whether this was a good idea. I mean, I certainly question that now, but I think because of his history of Guillain-Barre syndrome, I was actually worried about giving him interferon because that would have been a standard drug. I was worried about giving Ipi because I thought Ipi was much more likely to cause autoimmune side effects. He didn't have a history of colitis, but he did have some irritable bowel-type symptoms. And so I thought Pembro was the safer of the two. In fact, I made the decision to give him Pembro, and he actually paid out of pocket. You know, he was one of those people who could. But I guess in retrospect, you gave him the right treatment anyhow, right? With this auto, maybe if he wouldn't have caused this diabetes... I was worried at that time. I was like, wow, the guy has this history of neurologic toxicity. You know, IPI, we think, can cause all kinds of autoimmune toxicity. No, I was so just thinking of the adjuvant NEVO trial presented sure. at ESMOS and sure. now. But on the other hand, you know, actually, if you stop and think about it, I mean, what were you projecting at the time as his risk for recurrence? Back in those days, I thought his recurrence risk was about 30%. And I have to say that I would have been shocked if the AP versus Nevo adjuvant trial had shown anything other than what it showed, only because there's been so much data in the last few years. I guess moving forward, so now I guess everybody's going to use adjuvant Nevo, but I mean, would you use adjuvant Nevo in a patient like this with a history of Guillain-Barre, knowing they might be cured of their melanoma anyhow? That's a great point. I was actually at a debate with Mario Snall, and you know, I was arguing that adjuvant therapy makes sense, and he was arguing that adjuvant therapy does not make sense in some of these low-risk patients. And I think he convinced me, partly because of my experience over the last few years, because now I think, essentially, you have two shots at patients. You know, you have the adjuvant shot, and then you have the chance to possibly take a certain percentage of melanoma patients, perhaps it's 20%, you know, stage four patients, and you could move them into a complete response category, and then those are going to be lasting CRs. Perhaps it's 30% if you look at Ibinivo or maybe even more. So the fact that you have two shots, should we really be tackling these stage 3A patients at an early stage and perhaps leaving them a small percentage with lifelong toxicity. I wonder if we should now reserve adjuvant therapy only for really high risk, you know, 3B, 3Cs, and stage 4 patients. Well, that's really a good point. I didn't even think about it because in other parts of solid tumor oncology, breast cancer, non-small cell lung cancer, and patients with targetable mutations, people talk about you really ought to compare adjuvant therapy to treatment on relapse. And I guess, really, the melanoma trials don't do that, right? They don't or, do that. Although, I guess that's sort of what happens anyhow. That's sort of what happens. I think one of the things that brought this point home to me is that if you look at the COMBI-AD trial, which is the BRAF-MEC inhibitor adjuvant study, you know, if you look at the relapse-free survival curves, they are really impressive. They are pretty impressive. But if you look at the overall survival curve, it is 
the hazard ratio today, it's not statistically powered to show a difference or it's not currently showing a difference even though it has a lot of zeros in it, but it isn't as impressive. And many of these patients were treated in Europe and Australia, not in the United States. Now, today, if you were to do a trial like that, I'm guessing that the survival benefit for some of these low-risk adjuvant patients might not be very considerable, which is another way of saying should you really be treating everybody at that early point, giving them a year's worth of treatment, or should you be treating them at a later point when a small percentage of them, like say 30% of them relapse and then treat them at that point, and then possibly you have just as good a chance of rendering them disease-free? In terms of treating people with prior autoimmune problems, is your global take that in general you can and not uncommonly see reactivation or exacerbation of this sort of across the board. It's worse if you give anti-CTLA-4. Is that kind of globally the way it's shaken out right now? Yeah, I think that's the way it's globally shaken out. I think a lot of times what my experience has been is that the autoimmune toxicity that you worry and lose sleep about, a lot of times that is not the autoimmune toxicity that actually ends up happening just like with this case, you know, I've had this experience that, you know, you're thinking, oh yeah, that guy had colitis. That's the thing that's going to aggravate. But lo and behold, it's hepatitis. It's serious hepatitis that seems to be the problem. And again, I've been reading the autoimmune disease literature a lot. And apparently what happens with autoimmune hepatitis is that you have aberrant expression of this adhesion molecule called MADCAM1 in the liver. And MADCAM1 typically is only present in the colon. Once it's in the liver, then T cells, which should have been sticking around in the colon, now decide to go to the liver. And once they're in the liver, they just stochastically start reacting against the liver. That's interesting. What about skin toxicity? First of all, clinically, how often do you see it? What's the typical presentation? And again, anything in terms of pathophysiology that we know about? It is very common. And People dismiss it as being trivial, but the problem is that if you've been on treatment for two years or a year and a half, and if you're constantly itching yourself at night, and a lot of these skin toxicities do seem to happen at night or after you shower, it could just be really life-altering. I'm just thinking about this one gentleman who's on a clinical trial, has had a complete response, brain mets. He was on the brain met study with Ipinevo, complete response. So he's grateful. He was BRAF mutant. We didn't give him gamma knife. He had multiple, I want to say over eight brain metastases, many of them very sizable. So has had a complete response. But now, about a year and eight months later, his skin toxicity is really getting to him. He had some kind of hay fever, dermatitis, or something like that, even before coming on the treatment. But now, even despite the fact that he's using steroid all over body with saran wrap and stuff, he's just itching himself, just wakes up every night. And he told me, he's like, well, can I just stop this treatment? What do you think are the chances that this response will stick? And I said, well, I think it'll stick, but although I'm not sure I'd like to, you know, do a few more months of treatment to get a couple of more negative PET scans, but he's leading towards stopping treatment early. What is he receiving? He's getting epinevo. You said he's BRAF positive. What about switching him over there? Yeah, but the thing is, he's had a complete response. He had brain meds, so he avoided radiation treatment. You know, he's had a like a fabulous response, you know. So he has had a complete response. It's just a question of when to stop him. And I think I might decide to stop him earlier just because the skin toxicity is just getting the better of him. Can you comment a little bit about your approach to brain mets, both in BRAF uh, mutant and wild-type disease? 
I think that's been a huge change, like I'd say in 2017. Prior to 2017, I think most people, if you'd poll them, most melanoma specialists would lean towards surgery or gamma knife for a percentage of patients with brain meds. But now our practice has changed. I think for many patients, we just start them on just a systemic treatment, whether it's BRAF and MEK inhibitor or whether it's AP-NEVO. I don't use PD-1 single agent for patients with brain meds generally. I think the response rate, you know, Harriet Kluger had a very nice study in Lancet where she showed that there was, I think it's about 20% response, but to me, epinevo that's a good case for using epinevo And generally, we reserve gamma knife for the lesions that are not responding or not shrinking or residual tumors, or in some cases, surgery for tumors that bleed, which can happen. You know, you can have general shrinkage, but you can have bleeding tumors. Or in some cases, if you use BRAF-MEC, and you have similar like discrepant response, or sometimes when you have a nadir, I'll just zap the ones that are left behind at the nadir because I think that BRAF inhibitor, my thinking still is that most patients will recur on a BRAF inhibitor who have brain meds. You might have bought them time, but you're probably not getting a long-term response in a patient with brain meds specifically. Interesting. And globally, do the responses in the brain kind of mirror what you see systemically? In other words, you see more responses with BRAF therapy? I think this ASCO, there were a couple of back-to-back presentations, and it actually seems like the response rates are pretty comparable. I didn't see that there was a greater, it's you know about 40 to 50% for BRAF-MEC, and I think it's about 50% with epinevo. So I think in the brain, there doesn't seem to be a discrepant response by brain-specific measurement criteria. So the response for BRAF inhibitors, BRAF-MEC inhibitors, is a little bit lower in the brain than it is systemically. And at least in that one, the Hussein Tobi presentation, it seemed like the responses were pretty similar. And so I think all things being equal, I guess I somewhat prefer starting with epinevo. And speaking of epinevo, I'm curious where you stand today in terms of using that combination of first-line metastatic disease as opposed to just a single anti-PD-1 agent, and whether or not you incorporate pdl one level assays into your decision. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. Uh, yes, I do incorporate pdl one assays, and I know that now I'm somewhat of an outlier because I think a lot of people don't seem to think that the pdl one assays are meaningful. But my view is just like we were talking about a few minutes ago. I think that the pdl one assay is technically reproducible. You know, there have been studies done comparing different antibodies. It works fine. I think the problem is you're not converting all of the pdl one positives, all of the hot tumors to responses with PD-1. And the problem there, I think, is that you have inhibitory cells or bystander cells. Your PD-1 somehow stimulates those guys. That's my view today of the tumor microenvironment. So you're both stimulating the anti-tumor cells. You're also stimulating some of the inhibitory cells. And who gets there first determines whether you clinically have a response or not. But I think in this specific issue, single agent versus combination, I think a T-cell assay, whether you use our homegrown assay here at UCSF, use PDL one use gene expression profiling that Tony Rebus has talked about, any of those assays will give you some idea whether you're talking PD-1 responsive or you're talking needs more checkpoint stimulation. And I use that assay to inform. So the bottom line is I think I'm about 50-50 with epinevo versus PD-1 monotherapy. 
What about other predictors? I know you've been very interested in that general topic. Where are we in terms of getting better predictors? I think we are making headway. There's the clinical factors like the liver metastases. There's the LDH performance status, you know, just a clinical mucosal, uveal, acral, lentiginous versus the standard garden variety skin melanoma. And actually, there's a couple of really cool papers showing that microbial flora has an influence on response. But I think that the issue with the microbial flora question is that one paper was from Europe by Laurent Zitvogel, and one was by Jen Wargo and colleagues at MD Anderson. The problem still seems that we know that a diverse flora is good for you. And we know that if you take antibiotics, you're disrupting your gut flora. But within the spectrum of normal floras, it's hard to know if one particular bacteria or one particular organism makes a difference or not, just because in some of the papers, it seems like ruminococci is more important. In some papers, it seems like Ackermanni, if I'm pronouncing that correct, is the right flora. So I don't know if the particular kind of flora is what these studies are pointing out to, a diverse flora that's not antibiotic, modified or extinguished. And so I think in terms of clinical applicability, I mean, I tell patients, you know, try to avoid using antibiotics, use probiotics. But beyond that, what specifically, what can you say to a person who walks into your clinic? I'm not sure today what we can do. What's the pathophysiology of why the different flora change the way the drugs work? Or is it a pharmacologic thing or a biologic thing? It isn't super clear, but one theory is that some of these bacteria, whether it's the filaments in them, the probably are filamentous structures, are stimulating TLR9 and TLR9 in your gut. And that in some way acts on your liver. And in some way that changes your immune rheostat and gives your T-cells a little extra activation. And so if you have T-cells that are close to, you know, that, that's the simplistic way I look at it. In some way, it's changing your whole body immune rheostat. There was actually a really interesting paper from this guy, Kevin Harold at Yale, who's done some really cool work with autoimmunity. And in fact, he showed that even immune suppressants don't tend to work as well when you've had antibiotics that have wiped out your gut flora. So it's not just immune checkpoint, but you do seem to disrupt immune agents in general if you change the temperature of your immune system. The microbiome, I love that one. So you mentioned a combination immune checkpoint therapy. Of course, we have anti-CTLA-4 and anti-PD-1-PDL-1, but what about some of the other agents you mentioned, IDO inhibitors? I know there's one that's actually got a name now, epicatastat. What are those? And in general, what is the thinking now in terms of looking at other checkpoints? There's TIM3 and LAG3. Any thoughts about those? What I see happening with the epicatastat is that, again, you're converting some of those PD. One of the interesting things with epicatastat is that PDL1 is actually a pretty good marker for. IDO inhibition. And IDO1 expression is a pretty good marker for PD-1 inhibition. And I think it kind of points to a common etiology. And I think what you're doing is you're taking, instead of, say, converting 50% of the PDL1 positive tumors into responders with IDO plus PD-1, you're converting maybe 60 to 70% of the hot tumors into responders. And I think something similar happening with the LAG3 and TIM3 inhibitors. One of the things that are fascinating to me at ASCO was the drug that's known as Relat 
Lumav, I think if I'm pronouncing that correctly, I think Paolo Ashierto presented that data at ASCO. Basically, it's a lag three on antibody with PD-1. And what they showed is that there's a lag. The response rate was modest. It was like in the 11 to 14% range. So not a earth-shattering response rate, but this was in the PD-1 refractory population, and they had this marker, LAG-3 expression, and the LAG-3 positive group is where most of the responders were. So I feel like that's a huge step forward because now we have a marker. You could probably hone down in that PD-1 non-responsive population and get to the marker positive. Maybe you can talk a little bit about what Merkel cell is and what we know about it in terms of immunotherapy. Yeah, I feel it's really interesting because it shows the tremendous benefit of immunotherapy. So Merkel cell is basically a neuroendocrine cell that's present in your skin. It's a receptor. It's a sensory receptor. And for reasons that we don't fully understand today, this Merkel cell polyomer virus, which is very prevalent in the United States, maybe 40% or 50% of the population has traces of Merkel cell polyomer virus, can randomly integrate into your Merkel cells in the skin, and then depending on where exactly it integrates in your DNA, it can turn on cell proliferation and produce large T and small t antigen that's part of the Merkel cell polyomavirus. And then the large T antigen, predominantly we think, drives continuing cell proliferation. And so that's about 80% of all Merkel cells. 20% of Merkel cells seems like it's just UV damage that causes the like random disruption, I guess, of some tumor suppressor in your Merkel cells. And one of the amazing things is the high response rate with PD-1. It's like 40%, you know, with avelumab, and I think 60% with pembrolizumab. Although the trials were done in different populations, I think avelumab was second line, pembrolizumab was first line. And the real response rate might be probably 30 to 40%, you know, once these trials are done in a comparable population. Because most of the Merkel cell population is elderly. Our previous chemotherapy for them has been etoposide and platinum, you know, which is super toxic. I think being able to offer people, whether it's pembrolizumab or nivolumab or avelumab, either one of them, that's a huge advance. And many of these responses, just like in melanoma, are long-lasting. You're talking possible complete responses in some proportion of cases years-long duration. I think that's an amazing thing. What locations do you see these lesions? There's two types of Merkel cells predominantly. One of them is in the sun-exposed skin, and a lot of them are in much older folks. And then there's a second class of Merkel cell that's in the somewhat younger people, like 50s and 60s, and that seems to be on the buttocks. And not 100% sure why these different populations have different locations. But one of the interesting things that's turned out is that when you look at pdl one expression or when you look at Merkel cell polyomavirus versus negative patients in terms of their response to pd one drugs, doesn't seem to make any difference. So the virus positives, virus negatives, about the same response rate. pdl one also, again, many of these trials are small, so you're not talking hundreds of patients. So it could be that there could be some small difference in pdl one expression, but doesn't seem to make any difference whether you're virus positive or not or pdl one positive. It seems like the response rate is pretty equivalent in all these populations. What's the typical clinical course they present with a localized lesion that is excised surgically? Yeah, it's like a red, it almost looks like a boil on your skin, but it's not painful, it's solid. It's not a white boil, it's a flesh-colored boil. Oftentimes it's on your face or it's on your hands. 
for most people and it just grows rapidly and oftentimes you know presents with either just that primary lesion or with a regional lymph node the previous Treatment paradigm has been wide local excision, central lymph node biopsy, adjuvant radiation. Many of these lesions are very sensitive to radiation. And I guess the one difference between melanoma and Merkel cell is the melanoma is generally radio-resistant, but Merkel cell, even in advanced cases, can be very radiosensitive. And we've had a couple of patients where they've had responses to PD-1, but then there's a residual tumor left behind somewhere. You radiate that tumor, and lo and behold, you have this abscopal kind of response, which at least I haven't seen a lot of abscopal responses myself in melanoma. But in Merkel cell, I have seen that with PD-1, that you know you radiate one tumor site and then everything just responds. That's interesting. How often is local disease control a problem? Merkel cell can be a problem with local disease. For reasons that are not totally clear, Merkel cell has a habit of metastasizing to the pancreas. Wow. We don't know what the biology there is, but it often presents as a very large pancreatic mass. And, you know, near there, there's a celiac artery. There's a possibility of having intra-abdominal DVTs. And so local and regional control can be a big problem in Merkel cell. And they're rapidly growing. So a lot of times you'll have surgery. And then when the patient is recovering, again, you'll see the Merkel cell lesions pop up. Globally, what's the overall cure rate with Merkel, just with local therapy, with surgery? I think it's high. It's about 50%. 50% is cured. Anything other than the pancreatic mets that's characteristic in terms of metastatic disease? I've heard it said it's usually rapidly progressive. Is that your experience? It's rapidly progressive. It has a different biology than melanoma. It doesn't tend to metastasize as much to the brain, from my personal experience, as melanoma does. And it's generally an older population that what I can see. We were talking about adjuvant therapy before, and now, of course, we have an instant dilemma in BRAF-positive patients. You have the positive dibrafenib-trametinib trial. You have the positive NEVO trial. Kind of looks like similar risks and benefits. How are you planning, or how are you now since ESMO discussing this with patients? I had a 31-year-old who had a stage 3B melanoma, and I want to say he had a left arm primary axillary mass resected. And I had this question just now. His dad is a pathologist, so he's pretty knowledgeable. And he was BRAF mutant also. I made the decision based on the fact that he was pdl one negative. So I just thought that his chance of responding to NEVO was maybe a little bit lower because he was BRAF mutant. I thought, in his case, he's 31 so I didn't think that waiting and watching was a great option in this case. And I thought there was some chance of a long-term cure. So that's how I think that's one way to make that. I think what I'm hearing from people is that in most cases, they'll use immunotherapy. And then that's perhaps reasonable. But I think there are cases where immunotherapy won't work. And I've seen that. You've had patients recur while they're on adjuvant Nevo or Pembro. I think that just points to the fact that, you know, if you treat patients who just don't have a lot of T-cells, you're probably going to fail. But in general, is it your take that both of these strategies have similar benefits, or do you kind of feel like immunotherapy might, in the long run, be a better strategy? I think immunotherapy might be a better strategy in the long run. And the reason I say that is that, you know, again, without knowing a whole lot about survival, which I think would be nice to see 
some survival benefit from the Nevo versus IP trial. I think we know that IP is a survival advantage, but does Nevo have a survival advantage versus IP? So we don't know that. And it's only, you're talking 18 months, which is not a lot of time. But my bias is to think that immunotherapy will be better because I see the banana-shaped curves, relapse-free survival curves with the COMBI-AD trial. And then I see the negative Vemurafenib trial, which Carl Lewis reported at ESMO 2017, it was Vemurafenib versus placebo. Vem for a year versus placebo. And I think the MEK inhibitor does add, but you have to ask yourself, is the MEK inhibitor really going to change the natural history of the disease? Or is it, you know, just how much of a survival benefit is there going to be? So this man, you're going to start on Dubradnevitrametinib? I think that if you could convince yourself that immunotherapy maybe won't work because it's a pdl one negative tumor, I think that's who I'd reserve for target therapy. Any thoughts about the challenges of getting a patient through a year of targeted therapy in the adjuvant setting? We put a fair number of patients on adjuvant dabrafenib, trametinib a few years ago, and it is a problem. And, you know, again, I think the fevers and chills just my personal feeling is that you do have them more often in adjuvant patients, just like you have any side effect. I think it's more noticeable when you don't have metastatic cancer. The earlier point we were talking about is that it'd be nice to have a briefer regimen rather than putting everybody through this extensive, costly treatment when there's a potential that you could save some of those patients at the back end if they relapse. So to maybe get a little bit more into the challenges of using BRAF therapy, maybe you can talk about your 47-year-old patient. Sure. So this is a 47-year-old who had a back lesion and then had recurrence and had very extensive disease, including multiple sites of disease, and started on epinevo, had rapidly progressed on epinevo, and luckily was BRAF mutant. So we had that option, treated him with a BRAF and MEK inhibitor combination, but just had really bad fevers and chills, just couldn't tolerate it. I tried all kinds of maneuvers. You know, I tried intermittent treatment. I tried giving him low-dose prednisone. I tried doing 21 days on and seven days off and tried taking him off the MEK inhibitor for some time and just various maneuvers that we do. And it didn't work switched him over to Vemcobi, and he tolerated that much better. Now, I've done the reverse too, but in this case, this was a gentleman who was happy using sunscreen and staying indoors for the major part of the day. And for him, the fevers and chills really were just disabling. And he continues to have really good disease control. And given how extensive his disease was before his LDH was, I want to say 3,000 or something, to start off with. So in my opinion, this is a real success. He's now about a year and a half into treatment. And from what I can tell, tumors are generally stable. There's been some slow progression. And I recently added PD-1 to his regimen, hoping to get some control. You added it to the targeted therapy or you stopped targeted therapy? Added it to the targeted therapy, but I think that's not something that there's any data support for. But I feel that if you stop targeted therapy in patients with very extensive disease, you can get such a tremendous blowback that before immune therapy has a chance to work, 
you could probably be blown out of the water. And this is a patient who has failed was So I have reason to think that he doesn't have a highly T-cell infiltrated tumor to begin with. So I don't know how likely it is that this will work. I'm just waiting to put him on a clinical trial. That's my plan B. So you wrote a paper in the Journal of Hematologic Oncology, indirect comparison of dibrafenib trametinib versus Vemu-Cobi. So maybe you can add in the third doublet, encarafenib and benimetinib, and kind of tell me in your own mind the way you see those three doublets and how you choose between them. That's a great question. I think they're relatively equivalent, I would say, in terms of response rate. Where I see the differences are just in the side effect profiles. And from what I can tell, with them, Kobe, you don't have the fevers and chills as much, but you do have more skin toxicity. With DAP-TRAM, in general, it's tolerable, except for the fevers and chills, which are, in the first six months anyway, they are a pretty serious issue for most patients, especially young, healthy patients who have minimal disease. They seem to have really high levels of debrafenib, and they seem to have the high fevers and chills. In terms of the three doublets, encarafenib and benimetinib, I think, from my reading the literature, avoids the side effects of either one of those and has, at least numerically, a better PFS compared to either one. What I've heard is that the major, or what I read from the literature, is that PPE seems to be the major issue with the encarafenib, benimetinib, the palmer planter, you know, the red palm. So that's a relatively trivial side effect compared to the fevers and chills and compared to extensive photosensitivity that you have with vemurafenib. At SMR, there was one of these debate things, and I was on one side of a panel, and I think my take on the BRAF inhibitor field is that even today, this is about five years after they were introduced into clinical practice, I think we don't understand today what the problem is with BRAF inhibitor resistance. Is it pharmacokinetic? Is it pharmacodynamic? Is it the development of resistant mutants? Or is it something totally different, like just some kind of epigenetic regulation and the cells just hunker down into like this hibernation state, you know, and have EMT and just just de-differentiate and just outweigh. So it isn't totally clear because if you look at the last five years of publications on this, there's been so many targets pointed out, either it's MEC or it's NRAS, either it's IGF-1, and they don't seem to be reproduced in subsequent studies. So to me, it seems like in a certain percentage of cases where you might have resistance or you might have problems with one of the drugs, you might be able to salvage them by simply changing the BRAF and MEK inhibitor. And again, these drugs haven't been tested in that setting where if you're progressing off, let's say, DAPTRAM, you could salvage them with VEMCOBI. But I certainly have seen that people can have different responses to either one. You know, you could treat patients with DAPTRAM and you could have a certain degree of response. You change them over to a different inhibitor and you could see further shrinkage of tumors. I want to ask you about uveal melanoma. I know you had a paper in cancer. Can you talk about what we know about that and particularly about the use of checkpoint inhibitors? They seem to be refractory or resistant to checkpoint inhibitors in general, especially to single-agent PD-1. I think with ipinevo combination, I think there was a retrospective review that showed that there might be about 15% response to ipinevo combination. But our paper looked at just single-agent PD-1, and I think we had only, like, I want to say two or three patients responding out of 60. And if you look carefully at those patients who were responding, they were 
atypical. There were patients who had prior chemotherapy or in some cases, patients who didn't have liver metastases. That's typically what happens with uveal melanoma. They're associated with liver metastases, but these were patients who atypically had lung metastases or some other metastases. And it could be that the immune suppressive microenvironment of the liver combined with the fact that these tumors have low mutation burdens to start off with, you're just stacking one immune suppression mechanism on top of another and you end up with a very immune, not sensitive tumor. Do uveal melanomas have BRAF? No, they almost never have BRAF mutations. They never have, or they rarely have NRAS mutations. The kinds of mutations they have are in these G proteins called GNA11 and GNAQ, and they activate the MAP kinase pathway, but not through RAF or RAS, but this is higher up on the cell membrane. These are receptors, G proteins, that are apparently present in your uvea to a high degree. Any other mutations or targetable mutations that look promising in melanoma? There was talk about, you know, there was a lot of interest in NRAS. I see you have a paper looking at ribociclib. That's kind of interesting. Uh, CDK inhibitor we use in breast cancer with benimetinib. What do we know right now about NRAS disease? NRAS disease is very interesting because of our problems targeting RAS in general, KRAS, NRAS, HRAS. We just have, today, nobody's figured out the challenge of how do you get an inhibitor into a protein that's so smooth, it just doesn't have a lot of grooves and crevices in there. So these inhibitors don't fit in. So we're stuck trying to inhibit downstream of NRAS, which basically means MEK or PI3 kinase. And MEK and PI3 kinase cannot be inhibited together, so you have to focus on one of the two. And if you focus on MEK, you still have a lot of signaling downstream. And so people have used CDK4-6, which actually looks pretty effective. That combination looks pretty effective. But I think we'll have to look at bigger trials to see whether there's a certain percentage of people who have long-term disease-free survival like you have with immunotherapy, or in general, are you just inhibiting the disease for four to six months, which if that's the case, I think it will be not as interesting. So let's move on and talk a little bit about basal cell. And you have a 58-year-old patient I wanted to hear about. Yeah, I remember this patient pretty well. He's a guy who had a basal cell and like happens with a lot of basal cell patients, I think may have waited too long to see the doctor, but he had an axillary lymph node metastases and lung lesions. Where was the primary? Primary was on his shoulder. Was he in a social situation that was related to delay? Is that what you typically see? In his case, he's actually has great health insurance and is a government employee. I don't believe it's due to social factors, but I think it could have been anxiety about seeking medical care. It could be one of those type of things. How big was the primary? The primary basal cell had been resected when I saw him, but from reading the notes, it was about maybe half a centimeter in size. That's so, all? So not, yeah. So not the biggest basal cell in the world, you know? And it had metastatic disease. Well, yeah. What happened in his case is that he had a local regional recurrence before it became metastatic. He had this axillary lymph node. And I think if that had been resected earlier, that might have helped, or this is all hindsight, but when it was resected, he did have extra nodal extension, and perhaps it was too late by that time. So I started him on vismotegib, and he had a response both in his lung nodules and in his axillary metastases, but after a prolonged period of time, the dysgeusia 
that can happen from these hedgehog inhibitors can be a problem. In his case, the muscle cramping wasn't as big of a deal. That's the other major side effect of these agents. His electrolytes were normal, but the dysgeusia really became a problem. And after several months of trying to talk him into intermittent treatment, there's some data with vismodigib and hedgehog inhibitors that you can get some good mileage by intermittent treatment. I tried giving him drug holidays, but ultimately it just proved too hard to do. And basically he decided to stop taking vismodigib. And I still follow him and I still see him and his tumor is growing larger. And hopefully I'll be able to convince him to do something I think he was looking for uh, compassionate use PD-1, and he was looking for immunotherapy trials. But to my knowledge, he's still not treated, and he's still just on an extended, you know, he's been about six months off treatment now. What do we know about checkpoint inhibitors in basal cell? There was a paper in squamous cell that showed some activity in squamous cell, and it was a PD-1 antibody. I want to say it was presented at ASCO. Right. But that was squamous. Squamous. Basal, what I've heard anecdotally through my colleagues is that people have noted responses with basal cell, but I don't know of an actual piece of data that there's a certain response rate. If I had to guess, I'd say there might be a response rate because these are UV-induced tumors. They have a lot of mutations. If you follow that line of thinking, I think it's possible that you could have some response rate. There is now another approved hedgehog inhibitor, sonidegib. What about using that in a patient like this? I mentioned sonidegib to him, and for whatever reason, when we tried to switch him over to sonidegib, the insurance that he was on denied that. And nowadays, insurance and appeals is becoming like a standard part of oncology. And I wasn't able to convince the reviewers to allow that. And I think the problem was that I couldn't show that he had actually progressed from vismodigib. And I think that seemed to be what the insurance company wanted, that evidence that the vismodigib had failed. Hmm. What did he actually describe to you in terms of the dysgeusia? He almost made it sound like it was like a painful sensation, not just that he wasn't able to taste stuff, but that he had this constant metallic like almost like a painful sensation when he ate stuff, especially food that was, you know, a little spicy or a little, which he previously used to and enjoyed eating, almost seemed like it hurt him when he ate it. So that's what he described that as. Now, I have had a few patients with basal cell. It doesn't seem to be a problem for everybody. I have had a patient who has been on for three and a half years, and we only see him every six months because that's the cycle that he's established. And for him, it's the cramping that's more of an issue, but it's very tolerable. So I'm going to move back to melanoma and ask you about kit-mutated disease. I see you had a paper looking at nilotinib, but can you just sort of review the whole issue of kit-mutated melanoma? Kit-mutated melanoma probably affects about maybe 2 to 4% of all melanomas, and most of these are mucosal or acrolentiginous melanomas. So most of them are not your standard garden variety skin melanomas. There's a small percentage on the head and neck in extremely sun-damaged skin, but for the most part in the United States, it'll be acryl or mucosal. And there's many different types of kit mutations, and there's many different kit inhibitors, starting from imatinib. And there is a response rate of about 10 to 20% with kit inhibitors. 
and I can't tell for sure if one kit inhibitor is any better than any other kit inhibitor. What the problem is with the kit mutant melanoma right now is that there's a distinction between actual mutations in kit, amplification, and immunohistochemistry overexpression. And it seems like the kit inhibitors really only work in the mutated population or in the mutated amplified population, not in that just amplification or not in just overexpression. So that's a relatively small proportion of patients. And then to me, the other issue with the kit inhibitor treatment currently is that the response rates are what they are, but the duration of response is not as, you're not talking immunotherapy duration of response, you're talking a few months, four to six months. So I think with all that being taken into consideration, I think most people start kid mutant melanomas with PD-1 or immune checkpoint combinations and then move on to other treatment. And I think that's even true for these Fusion melanomas, there's a class of melanoma that involves gene fusions, either BRAF fusions, ROS, NTRAC, ALK fusions. And we have a clinical trial here at UCSF where we are looking at NTRAC, ROS, or MET inhibitors for this, or different type BRAF inhibitors like regorafenib for fusions. The typical V600E BRAF mutation that you see in melanoma, the kinds of inhibitors that work for that, like vemurafenib or dabrafenib, do not work in these fusion melanomas because you have intact BRAF. You don't have that mutation. So you need an inhibitor that can work in that situation. And we're looking to see what the response rate is, and we're screening a large number of patients to try to find these fusion melanomas. And at what point do you recommend kit testing in patients with melanoma? I think for patients who have mucosal melanoma or who have acral lentiginous melanoma, I think it makes sense to do kit mutation testing. In patients with normal skin melanoma, I think I would only do that if you had exhausted immune checkpoint inhibitor therapy and BRAF, and you've already tested for BRAF and it's wild type, because it's likely that you'll find BRAF or one of the more common mutations in those patients. Anything that we haven't talked about today that you want to comment on, any new research going on, any clinical issues that you want to comment on? What I'm excited by is there's this data showing that there's these tertiary lymphoid structures that are present in a lot of cancers. And what's in the tertiary lymphoid structures is follicular helper T cells, B cells, as well as T cells. And one of the interesting directions that I feel is worth exploring is trying to reproduce these tertiary lymphoid structures in your melanoma or in your treating cancer. And we think that if you have specific chemokines, you might be able to reproduce those TLS, tertiary lymphoid structures, and maybe that could turn some proportion of negative immune checkpoint negative melanomas to positive ones.